Hi everyone, I'm Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 8 of the 2017-2018 curling season. This week we chat with Shannon Burchard about her team's victory at the Colonial Square Classic in Saskatoon this weekend and we catch up with Nolan Thiessen who played a key role in getting the World Curling Federation to implement the 5 Rock Rule at their events. Also this week we continue our Road to Summerside series which skips Glenn Howard and Darcy Robertson and we'll play you a clip from episode 2 of the Next Steps with Kristen Streifle series where the 2017 Canadian Junior Champion interviews Brianna and Tyson Eaton, a medalist in track and field at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. Our feature interview this week is with Colin Grahamslaw, the Secretary General of the World Curling Federation, who joined us to discuss the World Series of Curling, some of the new rules that were passed at the recent World Curling Congress, and we also look back at what has been an eventful 2018 Olympic cycle for the sport of curling. All that more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. Our first guest this week will be Shannon Burchard, but before we chat with Shannon, here is our one-minute recap of Week 7 action on the World Curling Tour. The headline event of the weekend was the Colonial Square Classic in Saskatoon, where Team Burchard of Winnipeg defeated their clubmates Team Jennifer Jones 8-6 in the final. At the Mother Club Fall Classic in Winnipeg, Team Gunlockson continued their strong play by defeating Team Simmons 5-3 in the men's final, while Team Englot defeated Team Anderson 6-5 in the women's final by scoring 3 points in the 8th for the win. At the KW Fall Classic in Kitchener-Waterloo, Team Tippin won a Battle of Ontario over Team Froud by a score of 7-2 in the women's final, while Matthew Hall and his young team won the men's final by a score of 5-4 over Team Retchless. In the Final, the Service Experts Mixed Doubles Classic, the team of Jen Baxter and Mark Dacey from Nova Scotia defeated home club favorites Heather and David Nedwin by a score of 8-3. At the Lakeshore Cash Peel in Sackville, Nova Scotia, Kendall Thompson and his team defeated Stuart Thompson and his team by a score of 6-4 in the men's final, while Team McAvoy defeated Team Green 5-4 in the women's final. Winning junior events this week were Team Tardy of Langley and Team Daniels of Delta BC, Team Tian of China and Team Sturmey of Edmonton, as well as Team Walter and Team Weeby, both of Winnipeg. As mentioned, Shannon Burchard joined us following your team's victory this weekend at the Colonial Square Classic in Saskatoon. Shannon, most of our audience will not have seen the Colonial Square final that your team won over Team Jones on the weekend, but looking at the scoreboard, you seem to take control of the game by scoring a four-ender in the fifth end. Now, scoring four against Team Jones is not a regular occurrence, so can you take us back to that end and perhaps describe how it all transpired? Yeah, you know, the end starting out, it was not shaping up to look like we were going to be scoring multiples. Um, we got a little bit lucky in the fact that Jen's first one, she actually double jammed on a double and left us sitting two. And I was able to hit and sit three, and they were all kind of behind cover. She had to make um, a last attempt um, freeze to cut us down, and she ended up being short, so I actually had a free draw for four in that end. It was uh, very uncharacteristic of her, um, and we were lucky that we were able to capitalize on it. Team Jones closed within one point by stealing a single point in the seventh end. I'm just wondering what your team might have talked about between the seventh and eighth ends to avoid starting to feel the pressure that one might feel when playing against a team that has the pedigree of a Team Jones when you are one end away from your first World Curling Tour title. We definitely have to respect them for what they've been able to do throughout the past and what that is is really place rocks well. And so we kind of took that for granted, I think, a little bit um, in the, I guess it was the seventh end, and uh, they put their rocks in really great spots, and we were not responding super well, so that resulted in the steal. And so heading into the eighth, we really just had to refocus and just 
throw them clean. We knew that we just needed to give me a shot on my last so I, so we could score one, and that's all we needed to accomplish that end. So I think that took a little bit of pressure off everyone, and it ended up working out for us really well. So far this season, your team has done exceptionally well in your games against teams in the top 10 or top 12 in the world, but you've struggled somewhat in holding serve against teams that are either near you in the rankings or, most surprisingly, against teams that are much lower ranked than you are. How does a team go about getting over that hump of having the same focus regardless of the team that you are up against next? Yeah, you know, I think it's something that we've been trying to work on off the ice with our sports psychologist uh, quite a bit, and we had a bit of an off event in Edmonton and really started slow, and that's something that we really turned around quickly. Obviously, we played, uh, the girls played great this past weekend, and we were able to go undefeated, which is huge for our confidence, and uh, I think we generally tend to play up to our competition, so whether it's the the bigger teams like Jones, Flaxy, Englot, um, uh, and try to match their play, and sometimes it is a bit of a focus issue when you're playing against teams that are more your peers or maybe lesser ranks, so that is something that we definitely need to continue to work on and, and hopefully improve upon going forward. And finally, Shannon, the fact that you have been successful against some of the top teams in Canada so far this season has to give your team a certain level of confidence with the pre-trials coming up in a little more than a month. Oh, definitely. Um, that's our, that was our main goal heading in with all of these events that we've stacked up is to really just build momentum. And now that we've got a win under, a win under our belt, we can go into every event feeling like we belong there and feeling like we can win it and, and know that we can against the top teams regardless of the competition um, in the event. So... Uh, yeah, it's huge heading into the pre-trials and really, um, I think, will help our focus and help us really believe that we can we can get one of those spots that week. This week, we continue the road to Summerside Series by interviewing two more skips that will lead their teams into the Canadian Olympic pre-trials in Summerside PEI in November. Our first guest on the road to Summerside this week is Glenn Howard, a four-time world and four-time Briar champion who has played in every Olympic trials going back to 1987, when curling was still a demonstration sport at the Olympics. Glenn, you're the only curler competing in either the pre-trials or trials this season that has participated in each of the Olympic curling trials going back to 1987, when curling was still a demonstration sport. How has the importance of the Olympics evolved amongst curlers over that span, and how have the Olympics changed the sport? Well, I, you know what, uh, Frank, I think you might be right. Uh, I know I, uh, I have been lucky enough to be in every one of the uh, the Olympic trials since 1987 and uh, kind of proud of the fact that I've been able to make it and obviously uh, want to do it again this year. So that's uh, that's one of our goals as well. But, uh, you know, when you, when you talk about the Olympic trials and you talk about the Olympics, um, I really do believe it, it's changed our sport uh, for the better. Just the fact that uh, it became a... You know, it was a demonstration sport for many years and then became a full-fledged, uh, I guess, metal sport in 1998. And to me, that's when I think you started to see a change in the curlers themselves. A lot of it, from a, even from a physicality part, I think, you know, these, the, the, the typical curler today is, is, is a machine. They're just they're, they're a physical specimen. They're just in great shape. Uh, all of them are just out there working their tails off to get in better shape, to make themselves better, to make the game better. And I think it's, I really do believe it's because of the Olympics. I think it's because of that. The ideal, the Olympic ideal is uh, is the way it is, and, and curling is no different. And uh, I think it's been great for our sport. I think, um, you know, the athletes today are, are giving it 150% as well. You know, back in my day, in 1987, I wasn't giving it 150%. I couldn't. I was I had too much stuff on my plate. I had stuff on the go. It was sort of a, 
a really fun sidebar and, a, and, a, and a, a something I love to do. Uh, don't get me wrong, we, we, we sacrificed a lot, but I think people today and the kids today are sacrificing even more than we ever did back, uh, you know, 30 years ago. So, uh, and I do kind of say um, it's all because of the Olympics. Uh, you know, just the, the people, the, the kids and, and, and the athletes today are just work, you know, bigger, stronger, faster. Glenn, your team entered this season with your third Richard Hart, not playing early in the season to save on the wear and tear to his knee prior to the pre-trials. Is that a source of concern for you, or are you comfortable that Richard will be able to peak for the pre-trials despite limited action prior to Summerside? Yeah, you know, yeah, really, Frank. I think if I'd be kidding myself if I didn't think it was a concern. And, and even to Rich, you know, he, if he was on this conversation, he'd say the same thing. And this wasn't the plan by any stretch. We were, you were, we planned we planned our season right from the get-go. This is, we're going to start at... Uh, in the you know the slam in Regina, we're going to go to Shorty's, we're going to go uh, you know two cells and so on and so on. And that was the plan, and unfortunately, Rich's knees uh, uh, aren't in the the condition that he was hoping they were going to be coming into this season. And uh, the wily veteran that he is, he realizes that it's 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 only going to get worse unless he sort of eases his way into the season. So he's he's really basically taking uh, you know working working with his knees, working to get them in the best shape, kind of gradually you know do some deliveries and slides and this sort of thing and just ease your way in and unfortunately over the, our careers we've we've always tended to play a lot of bond spiels before we've even had ice conditions to go practice on and it's you always go in cold turkey and that's probably the worst thing you can do for for your 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 body and your knees and everything and uh, it doesn't matter how much uh, working working out you do your your body to get into that curling position is, is a little bit different than you can do in the gym so he uh, he knows that, so he realizes his knees weren't as good, as good a shape as he wanted them to be, and he's going to ease into it, and he figures that's going to be better for the long term, and uh, I trust him on it, and I think that's that's the right decision. I'd rather him do that than, you know, go into Regina and his knees blow up, and, and I lose him for the year. So the plan is that he was going to, you know, ease into it through the month of September. Uh, it's only that he only missed the two spiels. He's going to be right back at it at, um, in Stu Cells in a couple of weeks. And then hopefully we'll get two or three spiels in before the uh, pre-trials and then we'll go from there. And it is what it is. There's nothing we can do about it. Is it ID? Um, is it the way uh, we plan as a team and is it the way Rich plans as, as, as a player? No. But this is what we're dealt with. And uh, I'm fully confident that he'll, uh, you know, he'll figure it out. And hopefully the, uh, you know, touch wood, hopefully the knees are going to be okay for him to play to the best of his ability. And uh, I know he'll give it 150%. There's no question about that. Your team will be one of the teams with a target on their backs when you get to Summerside, whether it's by performance leading up to the pre-trials or simply by reputation. Everyone in that field will be geared up to play Team Howard. Can that actually play in your favor in an event like that, or would you rather go in under the radar a little if you could? Well, it's funny, uh, Frank, and I've kind of been in both sides of that uh, that equation over my career, and uh, I, I never know. I never, I never always think that we we've got a target on our backs. I guess unless you're the you know the best team in the world the year before, sort of thing. And, and I, I think the intimidation factor is gone now. To be able, uh, again, the athletes today, I don't think they're, they're so well trained, they're so well coached, they're so well, you know, adverse to the game that they they feel that uh, it's they just go out and control what they can control and, and not worry about who they're playing and uh, and that's evident on the ice. The product is so much better today than it was 25 years ago. So yeah, I I, I hope there's an intimidating factor because that can that can work in my favor. I have I absolutely no idea if it will be or not. Um, I know for one thing we'll be ready and I know uh, we're going to give it a, give it our, our all and uh, we know we can beat any uh, we know we can beat any team on the planet. There, there's no question about it. We're not quite as consistent as we used to be, but 
that that's uh, hopefully we can we can get consistent for the weekend uh, in PEI and then get to the top two and uh, go to the trials and do the same thing again. It's really about peaking at the right time. You don't have to win every game, but you just have to get yourself to the weekend and hopefully perform better after that. You'll go down as one of the most successful curlers ever, but the one thing missing on your resume is an Olympic medal. Would your career feel incomplete if you retired without ever going to the Olympics and winning a medal, or would it simply be some really good icing on the cake for what's been an exceptional career? You know, really, completely honest, uh, really nice icing on a, on a great career. Um, I can't, I cannot, you know, I cannot sit back and think and feel sorry for myself if I don't make an Olympics. I can't. I just, I think, I really feel I've been blessed with, uh, you know, the um, accomplishments that I've been involved with. And, and obviously, I, I, I credit all because of the amazing teammates that I've had over my career. Um, I, you know, four, four Canadian, four World Championships. I, I guess I've won, been to 17, won 17 provincials. Granted, do I want to go to Olympics? You're darn right I want to go to the Olympics, and that is that is sort of the, the one thing that is sort of left off the resume, and that's, you know, that's why I'm giving it a go this year. And uh, But if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. I, uh, you know, you can't have the, your cake and eat it too all the time, but uh, I, I would be still be very, very proud of, uh, of my accomplishments and, and my team's uh, teammates' accomplishments over the years if I don't make it to the Olympics. And finally, Glenn, what would it mean for you and your team to represent Canada at the Olympics in Pyeongchang? Well, it would be probably the best feeling ever and, and in the most proud moment of my life. Uh, I have been, like you said, I've been blessed uh, to be able to, to, to say that I've worn, worn the, McCain, the Maple Leaf four times. Uh, to have that on your back, to listen to the national anthem is absolutely incredible. And to, be, to do that at an Olympics is that much bigger. There's no question. It's the biggest sports spectacle going. It's, to me, the, the biggest carrot uh, that you could go for in curling. Uh, and and it's it's the epitome of, of sport, and uh, to be able to have that on your back would be just uh, oh, I don't know, it would be, be surreal, absolutely surreal. I think it would be incredible. And I've seen like again, I've I've talked to my brother, I've talked to to, you know, to Richard Hart, I've talked to Mike Harris, I've talked to you know, Brad Gusha, all these guys, Brad Jacobs, they they say the same thing, and it's it's uh, it's just that much bigger when it was the Olympics, and that would be absolutely incredible. Our second guest on the road to Summerside this week is Darcy Robertson, a past Canadian champion whose team made it to the final of the 2017 Manitoba Scotties where they lost to eventual national runners-up, Team Englot. Darcy, there are some in our audience that may not know much about you and your team. Can you tell us a little bit about your curling background and perhaps tell us a little bit about your team? Well, my curling background, I go uh, far back. I curled with my sister for many years and uh, we've played in Canadian championships as well as the Scotties Tournament of Hearts. And my team that I have right now, I've curled with Vanessa Foster for eight years. And Karen Klein came on our team about two years ago. And uh, we have a new lead, actually, Teresa Cannon, who um, has just joined the team as one of our players is having a baby. So um, so we've been together for the last two years. And we're, um, you know, in the pre-Olympic trials now. And we're looking forward to that. You're a veteran player on tour, and you are headed to your first pre-trials. How exciting is it for you to be participating in the pre-trials at this point in your career? Oh, it's very exciting. Um, you know, I've curled for a long time. I've kind of taken breaks from the game. And um, so for me to get back to this level and be able to, um, you know, have a chance to represent Canada, it's it's fabulous. How important was a run you made at the Manitoba Scotties last spring, losing in the final after defeating Team Anderson and Team Jones along the way, in giving your team the confidence that you can compete for and win one of the two spots for the trials available at the pre-trials in Summerside? Oh yeah, like that gave us a, a huge amount of confidence that um, you know we can beat these top teams, and yeah, we've got the talent and what it takes, and um, yeah, it just gives you that huge 
confidence boost that, yeah, we are where we need to be and we just need to continue growing and working and, uh, yeah, and, you know, we do have a good chance of, um, you know, getting to the next level. Your team has played several events already this season. Have you front-loaded your schedule so that you can take a few weeks off prior to the pre-trials to rest and prepare, or will you be playing a busy schedule all the way until Summerside? Yeah, we're pretty front-loaded. Um, we've got, we've already played in three bonk bills. This is our fourth, and um, we're trying to do everything we can to be prepared for the pre-trials and to peak at the right time. Um we felt that playing in a lot of events was a good thing for our team. Um, we, you know, want to be, you know, like I said, ready and um, have a lot of games under our belt before we get to the pre-trials. And that's how we're looking at taking a, a little bit of a break before the pre-trials and just practicing. But uh, we wanted to start our season pretty early. And um, this is the earliest we've ever started. So it's, uh, yeah, it's um, a good way to for our team anyways to, to prepare. And finally, Darcy, what would it mean for you to represent Canada at the Olympic Games? Oh, well, that would be um, an absolute dream. I mean, you know, um, I've been in this game a long time, and I've, you know, when Olympics, uh, when the curling became part of the Olympics, I was just, you know, super excited that, um, you know, a curling, a, a game that I am passionate about is in the Olympics, and it would be a dream. And actually won a Canadian championship, but never won the Maple Leafs because there was no world championships at the time. So um, so that would be something I'd be um, super proud and, and excited about. It's now time for this week's Fresh Pebble, your news and notes from the world of curling. At the conclusion of the 6th World Curling Congress last week in Bled, Slovenia, the World Curling Federation Board accepted new associations into its membership, taking the total number of member associations to 60. Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, Portugal and Saudi Arabia have all been approved into conditional membership. Eastern Europe continues to be a hotbed for mixed doubles curling. At the Tallinn Mixed Doubles International in Estonia on the weekend, local favorites Marie Turman and Harry Lill defeated the reigning world champions of Perrette and Rios of Switzerland in the semifinal and completed a Swiss double by defeating the team of Barbazat and Perrette in the final. And it was another solid, if unspectacular, week for Asian teams on the World Curling Tour. Team Fujisawa and Team Gim qualified at the Colonial Square Classic, but failed to move past the quarterfinal. At the KW Fall Classic, Team Chang Min Kim of Korea continued their strong start to the season, reaching the semifinal as did Team Zhu of China. Meanwhile, at the Service Experts Mixed Doubles event in Edmonton, the Chinese teams of Wang and Ba, as well as Zhang and Li, both made it to the semifinals before losing to veteran Canadian teams. The second episode of Next Steps with Kristen Streifel is now available online. This time, Kristen is joined by Brianne Tyson Eaton, a 2016 Olympic bronze medalist in the heptathlon. Brianne discusses her development into a world-class athlete, her transition from student-athlete to professional, how striving for Olympic success impacted her relationships, and why she decided to retire while still at the peak of her career. In this clip, Tyson Eaton discusses how similar, yet different, the Olympics were to other events she competed in. Yet you definitely feel added pressure in the Olympics. And I think that's just because they're only every four years and the whole world pays attention. Uh, the funny thing with track and field, and I'm sure with all of the different sports that are Olympic sports and have world championships, is that in the world championship year, nobody pays attention to it. But it's all the exact same people that compete at the Olympics. It's the exact same layout. And just the whole competition feels exactly the same. It's just like the the away from the track isn't the same. The complete interview with Brianne Tyson Eaton can be heard on the From the Hack website or in our iTunes feed. <laughs>
Our feature interview this week is with Colin Gramslaw, the Secretary General of the World Curling Federation. I spoke to Mr. Gramslaw a few days following the end of the World Curling Congress in Slovenia, where a series of important partnerships and rule changes were announced by the World Curling Federation. Colin, the announcement coming out of the 6th Annual World Curling Congress that will likely get the most attention was the announcement that the Chinese company Kingdom Way Sports had invested $10 million in a partnership with the World Curling Federation. How long has this partnership been in the works and what were some of the key factors that you believe entice Kingdom Way Sports to get involved in the sport of curling at such a significant level? We've been working with a number of different people over the last year or so looking at the funding for... uh, an annual series of competitions um, and Kingdom Way were the, the ones that we, we managed to come to a, a good conclusion with. I think obviously the the Winter Olympics in Beijing is is a clear attraction. The, the focus on winter sports in China over the next Olympic cycle will be huge. You know, they're talking hundreds of millions of uh, people being exposed to winter sports and trying winter sports. And I think the, that is something that's got a lot of different uh, Chinese and Asian companies very excited. So we're, we're, uh, we managed to work up a, a good partnership with them, a good agreement with them, and we'll look to continue to build and put this new series in place. Um, and hopefully it'll help uh, build the worldwide profile of the sport uh, throughout the curling season. One of the key components of the partnership with Kingdom Way Sports seems to be the creation of a World Series of Curling. Now, I can appreciate that all the details may not be in place yet, but can you speak to the major objectives for the World Series of Curling? Yeah, I mean, it, it comes out from feedback we had from our members uh, a number of years ago that they, they felt that we should be looking to increase the, the kind of events that we had that were uh, broadcast-friendly, uh, you know, so outside of Canada, many nations don't have much broadcast of curling. Uh, they maybe see the, the two world championships, the European championships. Um, but, they, you know, they were looking for something that would provide coverage on a more regular basis throughout the season. So this is where the World Series came from, to develop a number of events during the curling season that could provide a top-level product that... Uh, would give a, a broadcast profile to the sport on a more regular basis. Over the past several weeks, both Jerry Gertz of the World Curling Tour and Marcel Rock, who works for the Chinese Curling Association, have been guests on From the Hack and have spoken to the potential of the Chinese market for the sport of curling, and the partnership with Kingdom Way Sports certainly seems to support this. That being said, what are some of the quote-unquote trickle-down impacts that the new partnership with Kingdom Way Sports might have on the sport of curling in other parts of the world? There's an element of the partnership that's aimed purely at development work and uh, that'll have an impact on what we do in development. Um, I think increasing that broadcast coverage will will help the profile of the sport. Um, it will help the profile of individual athletes as well. Um, we've got to look at how we utilise the digital media um, to to take some of the content that the the new events and our existing events are going to provide and use that to help build the profile, build the numbers in the sport. You know, we also added new members to the Federation at the Congress this year. Uh, We're now up to 60 members worldwide. So it's looking to use all the different elements from the Olympics, the World Championships, through our development programs such as Olympic Celebration Tour, Business of Curling, coach instructor courses, 
icemaker courses, using all of these to help build capacity um, and increase opportunities for people to, to try the sport, to play the sport on a regular basis and to develop their own talents. With the creation of the World Series of Curling joining the Grand Slams and the upcoming Champions events in Europe, there is some concern that the schedule for elite teams will become a little overcrowded with 10 to 12 major events on the schedule, plus playdowns and other regional events. I'm just wondering if there are plans in place to bring everyone to the table and develop a schedule that will work for everyone involved and avoid direct competition where there might be a World Series of Curling event in China that starts a day or two after the end of a Grand Slam on the east coast of Canada as an example. There's certainly a jigsaw puzzle to be to be completed to look at where everything fits together and makes sense so that you know perhaps we're not asking athletes to to flip from one continent to another sort of week after week. Um, so there's some work to be done in terms of, of programming and scheduling. Um, we've got to look at what the impact is on existing events on national championships. Uh, so you, there's a little bit of work to be done there, but I, I think there's still capacity there. I think there's the opportunity for events to to find their own level of what they're looking for in players and perhaps different events targeting different groups of players to to showcase them. There were several rule changes made at the World Curling Congress that will be implemented as of next season. The one change that's received the most buzz here in North America is that the Five Rock Rule will now be used at World Curling Federation events. Can you share how you expect the Five Rock Rule to impact competitions and also perhaps touch on how having consistent rules at events around the world might benefit the sport? I think the, the Stone Free Guard Zone is one that was very much uh, player-driven. Um, it came through the Athlete Commission. It's something that we were looking at and sort of seeing what we uh, what would work and what wouldn't work. Um, they felt that this would be a really positive change. Uh, many of them had experienced it in the, the slams. I think uh, that's something that our members all agreed with, that it, it would be something that would um, enhance the sport. Is there an opportunity to ensure that all competitions are played on the, exactly the same rules? Yes, but I think there's also an opportunity to use different events to to trial different new rules. You know, part of the challenge when you're looking at new rules is what impact are they going to have? And I think uh, if we can find a way of testing out potential changes with the, the top athletes, then that's something that's worth doing. Another rule change that came out of this year's Congress is that the World Curling Federation has replaced the page playoff system with a 16 playoff system. The page playoff system is popular in some circles, especially in Canada, because it provides a second chance for the top two teams in the round robin should they lose their first game in the playoffs. I'm just wondering what the key motivators were behind the change to the playoff system at World Curling Federation events. It's actually looking at the playoff system in, in total, or the post-round robin system in total. So one of the things that organising committees, broadcasters and other people are looking for is, is an element of certainty. And at the moment, what you have at the end of the round robin is potential for tie breaks. So the, the competition is building momentum, building to that, that climax, and then all of a sudden you have a draw that may or may not happen, depending on the results. So what we were looking at was, okay, is there a is there a playoff system that means that we could set tie breaks aside? And again, talking with the the different partners, it was felt that if we went to this way where six teams qualified, then perhaps we didn't need the tie breaks, and we then have that, that certainty of that sort of partial quarter final draw in place. 
um, the teams at the top of the round robin get some benefit for being at the top of the round robin because they get past that quarterfinal stage, so they get in, into the semi-finals. So they do get a benefit for for completing the round robin as the top teams. So I, you know, I think it was it was about that um, putting certainty in place, having a system that's very clear and easy to understand. There are times when explaining the page playoff system uh, can get a bit bit more difficult in countries that are not familiar with it so again you know in the Canadian marketplace they're used to seeing the page playoff system being used a lot in other other competitions or sorry other countries really maybe the the curling world championships is the only time they come across it so that that certainty clarity of a familiar system is something that uh, we think gave a lot of benefits. Another change that was announced at the Congress was the addition of a pre-qualifier for the 2021 Olympic qualification event. What is the World Curling Federation's objective in creating this additional layer to the Olympic qualifying process? I think the key is keeping the dream alive for a lot of countries. Um, you know, for many countries, uh, funding is driven by that Olympic dream and by providing that final opportunity, it, it helps them uh, persuade their national authorities to to continue to fund programs and to continue to support the team as they as they carry on through the seasons. Without that, that event, perhaps their Olympic dreams are over the year the full year before the Olympics. So uh, it, it just gave that opportunity, that final opportunity for uh, someone to progress from the pre qualifier to the qualifier and then on to the Olympics. Also last week, the World Curling Federation and Curling Canada announced that they had extended their World Championship partnership that will see Canada host the 2019 Men's World Championships and the 2020 Women's World Championship. Can you speak to the importance of the partnership between the World Curling Federation and Curling Canada, both in the hosting of these World Championships, but also in the growth of the sport? Yeah, um, I think the uh, it, it's, a, it's been a good, strong relationship with Canada, um, and it, it, that's a partnership that we wanted to continue. It gives us uh, uh, good events in good locations, and um, I think it's something that we, we wanted to continue. And working with Canada on one event a year uh, gave that stability and uh, you know, the opportunity to continue building the, the broadcast market there, um, uh, to work in partnership with uh, with TSN and Curling Canada um, on, on those events. As it does a year prior to each Olympics, the WCF held its 2017 World Juniors at the venue where the Olympic competition will take place. What does the World Curling Federation think of the Korean venue, and are there any concerns from your perspective with only a few months to go prior to the Games? That's not the first time we've been there. That's, that's the same venue we used for the World Women's in 2009. So, you know, we're, we're familiar with the venue before that. I think the the test events did exactly what we wanted. They, they tested the facilities. They they highlighted some areas we wanted work to be done on, and that work's now been done. It, it gave us a chance to look at how the athletes will flow around the building and, uh, you know, where we want spectators to be how we're going to work media rooms, mix zones. So, the, you know, the, the test event really does give us the opportunity to to run through everything that we're doing there. I think the, we've got uh, a great Korean team in the venue running the running the sport for us, and we're very positive about that. I think they're, they're really now, the Koreans are focusing on 
getting on with the final bits of the the last minute preparations, the selling of tickets, uh, you know, all, all that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, we're 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 confident that it's going to be a good venue. It's going to look great on television, um, and it, it'll present a great show. A year from now, we will be at the very start of the 2022 Olympic cycle. You've been the Secretary General of the World Curling Federation throughout the 2018 cycle. Can you share two or three things that the World Curling Federation has achieved in this cycle that you are the most proud of? Yeah, I mean, I think you'll see as we go into Pyeongchang, mixed doubles in the Olympics is a, is a major step forward. You know, to get a, a new event on the Olympic program is, is hard. And uh, we, we've achieved that, and that gives another medal to the sport. That means... They will be curling at the Olympics every single day. In fact, we'll, we start the curling before the Olympics starts. So that, that's a big positive. Throughout the four years, we've, we've increased our broadcast numbers and our sponsorship sales year on year. And I think the, you know, in particular, our broadcast and our championships are being seen by you know, half a billion people across the planet. That's a, that's a really good step forward. And, you know, on the development side, we've got a program, the Olympic Celebration Tour. We, we take Olympians into clubs and cities to, to promote the sport. And we've had Olympic Celebrations Tour in many sort of uh, American cities and uh, in Europe. And actually, they were, our Olympic Celebration Tour helped launch the sport in Mexico uh, this year. So, you know, we've taken the sport into new countries, new places and... Uh, it, it's been a really positive way of, of growing the sport. To borrow a term from golf, if you were given one mulligan and allowed to go back in time over this past cycle, what's the one thing you'd go back and change or deal with differently? It's an interesting one, that. Um, I kind of work on the principle is no regrets. You, you can only make the best decision you can in the situation you find yourself. It'd be very easy to go back and say, well, okay, could we have handled Brushgate differently or could we have done this differently or that differently? But... You come to the decision once you've worked through the problem and worked through the challenge. So, you know, for example, with the brushes, we've come out with a, a good solution that's worked. Maybe if we'd taken a different decision earlier on, we wouldn't have come out with such a good answer. So I, I don't think I'd want a mulligan to go back. I think you just play it as it lies. And finally, Colin, how important is the Olympic season for a sport like curling that obviously benefits from being seen during the Games by audiences that might not typically watch curling on TV? Listen, every four years we get a unique opportunity to take our sport to sports fans and new nations, you know, um, go back to Vancouver and look at the television figures. The most watched sport from the Vancouver Games in Brazil was curling. You know, we, we get tremendous coverage from the Olympics uh, and the Paralympic Games. You know, we're, we're as I said earlier, we're going to be on every single day of the Games with mixed doubles and with our regular curling. On the, for the first time, we will finish our curling program on the last day of the Olympic Games with the, the final of the World Women's. So, you know, it's, you can watch the World Women's final and then go straight out and watch the men's ice hockey final. That's going to be the, the, sort of the big two events on the final day of the Olympics. After each Games, we see growth in member numbers. You know, before the Olympics in Vancouver, we had 43 members of the WCF. As I say, we've just signed up member number 60 now. So, and I would expect again after Pyeongchang, we'll have yet more people knocking at the door wanting to join. And that does it for episode 8 of the From the Hack podcast. My thanks to all of our guests. Join us next week for more interviews with some of the key personalities from the world of curling. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at From the Hack. 
Facebook, and Instagram, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.